0: Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you but it also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back. Podcast 5 this time in American history. In podcast 4 we talked about the various reasons why Columbus set sail to the Canary Islands, and then why he set sail to the west from there. We also looked at the fact that he was sailing in one of the most dangerous meteorological times in the calendar year, that being, of course, hurricane season. We looked at some of the problems that he had with the uh, finding of what he thought was a malfunctioning compass, etc. But again, they didn't understand magnetic north versus true north. And then the problems with losing the Pinta on November 22nd and the Santa Maria running aground on December 25th of all days of the year, only to find that the Nina returned. And as I asked you in the last podcast, what type of grade would you give him in the sense of Ferdinand and Isabella deciding what to do with, you know, essentially what what he had uncovered coming back with the the actual flagship running aground turned into toothpicks or firewood for the natives there, and then he comes back only on the Nina, saying, yeah, we lost the Pinta as well, only for the uh, royal family to say, actually, the Pinta came back and thought that they had lost you, uh, who had run aground. So, it really seemed like it was somewhat chaotic in the sense of what Columbus, in terms of his grasp or understanding of the mission. So please remember, too, that with the grade that one might give him, I know to a certain extent there's a lot of, I don't know if you want to use the word dissension or animosity, against Columbus because really, did he discover the Americas or not? Primarily because we have two groups of civilizations that technically were on foot in the North American continent, as well as Central and South, long before Columbus got here clearly, first and foremost, were the natives. They didn't need to be discovered in the natives of North America, Central and South America. They didn't need to be discovered. They were already here. So how does a human being discover something that a human being was already there? So there's, there's clearly that uh, reason for the, the debate. The second is clearly that Eric the Red and the Vikings also were here. Now, we didn't know that again in the late 1400s. We didn't know that even into the 1800s. However, when we start getting into this idea of carbon dating in the latter half of the 20th century, do we find that the tools and other evidence of organized life that existed in the northern part of North America, those tools carbon dated to Viking times, anywhere from the 800s through the 1200s AD. So for that reason... Again, Columbus also was not the first European to arrive there in the Americas. Then why, hundreds of years later, is Columbus credited with the discovery of America? It all comes down to who the population is. Who is the population that benefited from Columbus's discovery? And that's the Western European populations, as we'll talk about in a moment about what powers will actually colonize the New World, etc., which we'll get to. But that's the reason why Columbus is credited with that. Columbus, however, even by himself, might also have been lost to history the way Eric the Red is, in the sense of having the first European to discover the Americas. But Columbus's discovery was on the heels of another discovery, or more or less an invention, that predated Columbus by over a century. And this invention is argued to be the most important invention in the entire second millennium, from the year 1000 AD to 1999. I remember I was a graduate student at the time, and I remember getting in the mail various offers of various faculty at DePaul university where i was a graduate student of faculty that wanted to participate in a survey this survey was being it was an international organization that sent out a list of questions or a questionnaire to academics of all type medical backgrounds legal backgrounds political backgrounds all fields of academia gathering what they that individual professor believed to be the greatest invention of the second millennium. And it's hard to believe, you know, when I pose this question to my classes, the way the average student runs right to the medical field with the inventions there, and clearly that's understandable. But when that's not considered to be the greatest invention, the cure for polio, or the cure for how many other medical diseases, sometimes students are stunned to say, I can't believe that that wouldn't be the most important. Maybe it's another more important medical discovery. But this invention was had nothing to do with medicine. And they're stuck. They're forlorn saying, wait a minute, how, What are you, what are you talking about then? Yeah, it was a mechanical device. It was a simple mechanical device called the printing press. Hans Gutenberg's printing press is considered to have been the greatest invention. And if you think about it, those great medical discoveries would have gone nowhere if it hadn't been for the printing press. All of us benefit from the printing press. So when Eric the Red made his discovery, he predated the printing press by a couple of hundred years. And as a result of that, when the Viking nation and civilization died out, so also did their discoveries. On the other hand, When Columbus makes his quote-unquote discovery, he tries to answer a single question mark. A single question mark. That's what he wanted to answer. Is there an all-water route from Western Europe to Asia? That's all he wanted to answer. One question. Instead, he comes back without that question answered, but comes back with still more. Who were the people he interacted with? Where were they? All these other questions now that is piled on top of, hey, your original. Is there an all-water route to Asia? Ironically enough, the day that I'm recording this particular podcast is May 14th of 2020. Not that the years matters as much as the date. But today, May 14th, 216 years ago, is when Lewis and Clark set out from the St. Louis area in order to see if there was an all-water route through the North American continent. Even though we laud, and rightly so, the discoveries that Lewis and Clark had made, along with, of course, their 48 men that were with them, just to think that Lewis, upon arriving at the Pacific Ocean in the current state of Oregon on November twenty-fourth, eighteen 1805, to think how disappointed he was to write back to President Jefferson, who was also disappointed to read, that I'm sorry to report, Mr. President, but there's no all-water route to Asia. Believe it or not, Columbus's question that he sought to answer in 1492 wouldn't be answered for another 316 years. And ultimately, that answer was no. So, you know, again, keep these other overarching points in mind when, again, we go back to this idea, Columbus, did you discover... The Americas or not. And again, I'm not here as I do with any of my podcasts. Am I here to try to get you to one way of thinking or another? Just to provide, rather, I want to provide you with the evidence, with the current scholarship and research that I've been exposed to, that I have done on my own, the travels that I have done, in order to provide you with a broader base of information for you to draw your own conclusions. However, if you think that I might be overplaying the card of the printing press. Consider this. Within two weeks of Columbus's arrival back in Spain in early fourteen ninety-three, within a matter of weeks, any country on the Eurasian continent that had access to a printing press knew who knew the name Christopher Columbus, and by extension, knew the questions that he question that he sought to answer and all those questions that followed. So again, if you don't believe me, that as I say, the printing press was really pivotal here to putting Christopher Columbus in the history books. Really nothing is. Because again, as I say, Columbus truly became a hero practically overnight. And that's the reason why Ferdinand and Isabella ultimately did give him an A for the trip and turned around and financed not only a second journey to those wherever he went, but would finance actually and support three more for a total of four. So, and I'm not going to get into the second, third, and fourth journeys here, because again, contact has been made at this point. By October 12th, 1492, the worlds of the West, Western Europe, and the worlds of the Americas had come together. And that's where we're going to go with from here. That said, I just want to briefly, though, End with an important point about Columbus. Please note that he clearly realized that he was on to something. Outer, outer islands of Asia, he doesn't know. That's why he's constantly referring to them as the Indies. That's where the term the Indians will come from. And the Indians doesn't apply to any one specific nation of tribes, whether they be in modern-day Canada or all the way down to the southern part of the South American continent. Any of these native peoples will be referred to as Indians because that's the way the Europeans are recording the history, and that's the reason that name sticks or that term. But Columbus also did realize that the moment that Ferdinand and Isabella, whom he thought would be so disappointed in the outcome of his first trip, When they salivated at the idea of new products, new people, new lands, new practically everything, and were quick to try to throw him onto another ship and shove him west as fast as he will sail, Columbus was no dummy. Columbus then secured a contract with Ferdinand and Isabella that said from here on out, whether this second trip is my last one or I make several more, Wherever Christopher Columbus and the boys plant the Spanish flag, whatever revenue Spain earns from Columbus's endeavors, the Columbus family will receive 10% of those claims with no expiration date. Had Columbus not come back in a future journey in chains, in a way, because of the way he treated the natives and Ferdinand and Isabella looked at Columbus and accused him of breaching their contract, tore that contract up. Had that contract not been shredded and still was active to this day, the Christopher Columbus family in 2020 would be the wealthiest family in world human history. The, the riches that Spain will gain would have provided the Columbus family with the type of income that truly would make that would make Warren uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates literally look like paupers in comparison, right? So the last part about Columbus that is also of importance, as I say, is that he died becoming later on not in his lifetime, but he died becoming a hero for something he neither planned, but also by his death. He never understood. There is a popular painting that I show my students that I can only describe to you here over this podcast, and it's a very easy one to picture in your head. But it's simply a a tall picture. If you want to just kind of get an idea of the measurements, it's about a foot wide by three feet or four feet tall. And it's just a picture of clouds in the background, the ocean on the right side of the picture, And then on the left side of the picture, it just shows that ocean coming to an abrupt ending, a stopping. And all the water flowing from the oceans down through the side or the edge of the Earth. There is one massive ship, the three-masted ship, of course, with that triangular sail on that third mast in the rear. In the stern of the ship, that is going over the edge of the Earth. The last ship, we don't see three ships, it's only two, but the third or the second ship that's also about at the edge is doing everything it can to try to turn itself around. And then in the very front or the forefront of the picture is a rowboat with several men inside, ferociously trying to paddle as fast as they can to get away from the edge of the earth and the doom and gloom that awaited once they fell off the edge. The painting itself, you might roll your eyes and say, okay, yeah, I I, I could have pictured that, or I'm picturing that. But the reason I show it to my students is because it was a popular uh, painting at the time of Columbus. But the caption is what says everything. The title of the painting was, I told you so. And that's when I let it hang out on my students over their heads for a moment, and they start to laugh, some just smile. But it's true. Today, we laugh at that picture because that caption we know isn't true. But going forward, even after Columbus's death, there will be naysayers, not only to what Columbus discovered, but naysayers to the physics behind Columbus's discovery and why it was possible. What I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen, is for Columbus to be accurate, for Columbus to have found an all-water route to Asia, again, even though he didn't find it in his lifetime and wouldn't for three more centuries, the fact that the Earth was round also threw a whole set of brand new unanswered questions with it. If the Earth is indeed round, then why we're, wherever we're at on planet Earth, why do we always feel flat? Why, when I put a ball on top of a perfectly flat table, why doesn't that ball want to roll right off? You see, and again, though, this is the age that we're getting into, and we can see how academic areas begin to start blending now. I'm covering these discoveries through history, a separate academic field, but so much of what I talked about couldn't have been understood without academics and physics and academics in geography and other fields, right? So please, again, keep that in mind that that's the reason why lots of uh, oftentimes, and we remember this in our own lifetimes, some of us were told this more as kids than not, but how many of you remember when a mom or a dad or an aunt or an an uncle that you asked a a question about, why is uncle so-and-so never with us? Why do I hear about this aunt so-and-so and she's never here? Why do I hear about this house that I was born in, but nobody talks about it? On and on, the questions can hang about our family that we want to answer, or we want answered for us, especially the older we get. And how many of us have ever heard this answer? Don't ask. Don't ask. And, of course, what does that do to curiosity? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I never thought about that. Oh, I'm not going to ask. Thanks anyways, walk away. Oh, heck no. no. The moment they say don't ask... We are now even more interested in finding out the answers to those questions, right? And then when you press them, why can't I ask? What's wrong? It's one question. Why can't you answer that? And the logical and most likely truthful responses, because that one answer is going to spawn a lot more questions that you have no idea that you're going to ask, right? Right? And that was also the reason why the love-hate relationship with Columbus today in the 21st century and the love-hate relationship with Columbus's reputation going back to his arrival back after his first journey. All these question marks. And if you think in any way, shape, or form that we have finally come to a consensus on the questions that, that still we still debate about Columbus and his discoveries, If you're thinking, well, first and foremost, of course, Chris, the earth is round and now we fully accept that. Then why is there a flat earth society? Why is there an organization of educated people that claim that the fact that the earth is round is nothing more than a propagated myth? It's nothing more than a scientific myth backed by governments around the world. Don't believe me? When you have time, go to type this into a search engine the flat earth Hey, they're always looking for new members. And even if you don't want to sign up, they have gift shops. They have a gift shop where you can buy items that perpetuates this idea and then finances their cause to eventually be able to prove that the earth is indeed flat. Again, don't take my word for it. Take a look at that uh, website. So, all right. So we are here with Columbus, as I say. We he's now he's made his first voyage. Please note one other thing that I show my students in class. Again, I can't share with you here. Is a true in their day true map of the world, a massive map that was uh, that was created in the 1520s that shows Europe. Of course, center point center uh, point right in the middle of the map is Europe, and then Europe's Continental dimensions are actually pretty accurate on this. However, Africa is still somewhat vague in terms of where it ends way, way south. Asia is massive. But even after now, two decades of discovering the Americas, North and South America is nothing more than a set of chain islands. Basically, a long set of linear land with another massive ocean on the other side. That, what I'm trying to demonstrate here, is that the Europeans, ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be well over a century before they realize just how massive the North, Central, North and South American continents are, much less how much land is also even in Central America. To the point, and this may start to get a ball of curiosity rolling with inside your mind, But just to put this into perspective, please remember that maps are tools. Maps are created by companies because companies want to make a profit. I'm not trying to suggest any kind of conspiracy theory here, but when they say maps are proportional, proportional, or in in retrospect, in a particular scale, that is within a margin of error. If maps are going to be useful to people, and people are going to buy those from company A versus company B, then the maps need to be useful. Therefore, maps tend to make the countries that are talked about the most around the world today tend to make those countries a little bit larger, and the countries that aren't talked about today nearly as much, a little bit smaller. Again, within reasons within the margin of uh, error within the scale that they're writing or drawing the map right so but just to put this into perspective just how large these the, the North American continent by itself is compared to western Europe and again why am i focusing on western Europe because they're the ones that are going to be the first to come here and colonize i'm not marginalizing africa the middle east asia or australia but I, this is American history, and I'm telling you the tale of these individuals that came here and how they got here and when, right? So, put this into perspective. You could take Spain and Portugal and put that inside Texas. You can take the entire country of France and spin it inside Texas. You can take the country of what, of Germany, both the former West and East Germany, both of them together, today's Germany. You can put that in the western half of Montana and do whatever else you want with the eastern half of Montana. That just puts us into perspective just how massive the continent that they are discovering. So moving along then, let's talk about who the they's are. When I talk about European settlement... The first thing I'm going to talk is a macro, and then we'll get into a micro in terms of the actual settlers. But at a macro level, what are the powers that be in Europe? We're trying to plant their flags here. Needless to say, because we've been talking about it, of course, is Spain. But off the top of your head, before I rattle off the other three larger countries, the main dominant countries that settle here, you probably already know what they are. You might say, well, no, Chris, that's why I'm listening to you, pal, because I really didn't pay attention in grammar school, social studies, or high school history. But if you have an inkling of the uh, knowledge of the map of Europe, you know who those other countries are. France, Portugal, and of course, England, right? Now, give me the main characteristic that all those four countries have in common. The main characteristic of those four countries. And what are you going to find? They all face water. They all have extremely long coastlines. As a result, those are the four countries that are going to be in the best position to make that daring, frightening crossing that in the best weather conditions takes six weeks to go from Europe to somewhere in North America, eventually Central and eventually South America. But those are the countries, Spain, France, Portugal and England, that if they are going to maintain their independence in Europe, they had to have an established army. But they also had to have an established navy too. That's what makes them in their days, in retrospect, that's what makes them superpowers. They have a massive, well-trained army as well as a large, well-trained navy. You can't have one without the other because you can't put Portugal, can't just have an army to protect itself from Spain. It needs a Navy because what if Great Britain wants to knock on their door from the coast of the Atlantic coast or France wants to do that? Spain, Portugal doesn't get to put out a do not enter sign on those beaches and think that they're going to, any would-be country that wants to invade is going to heed that. Heck no. If you're going to protect your coastline, you need a Navy. If you're going to protect that area that you're standing on to stay dry on, you're going to need an army. And that is, again, the reason why these are the richer countries. And that's the reason Columbus knocked on their doors, as we talked about a few podcasts ago. So those are the four main powers. Again, we're going to see the Netherlands get here, et cetera. We'll eventually, centuries later, we'll see the Germans come here. But at this time, the landlocked countries in Europe, they don't have the naval means in order to work their way over here. So it's only those coastal countries in Europe that initially colonized the, the Americas. So let's narrow down. Let's come from a macro getting through to a micro. Let's zoom in a little bit on this camera as we look, therefore, at the characteristics of these four powers. The first is the exploitation. I'm throwing it right out there because that was the most devastating effect was exploitation. Exploiting the land, exploiting nature, and most importantly, Exploiting humanity. Exploitation, as we know, is not a good word. That means I'm going to saturate every possible uh, drop and dime for what you're worth, and then I'm going to drop you and leave you where you're at. For the first couple of centuries, the European powers that be essentially are looking at the Americas only as a temporary area in which they will settle, because once again, they don't think it's that large. It's only when the awesome size of the American continents becomes a reality do they start scratching their heads saying, okay, maybe we are going to be staying here a little bit longer than we initially planned. So that's the first characteristic exploitation. The second is expansionistic inclinations. When I say expansionistic, meaning that these colonies and companies that they create, they will have a way of alleviating a little bit of the population problems there in Europe. But that's going to be coming later on exploitation, that's instantaneous. Get over there, get what you can, get it fast, get it cheap, and get it, and get it back here to the mother countries in Europe. Later on will be the expansionistic inclinations. Well, it's a colony. If we make it a permanent colony, we can start moving our people over there, settling some of the overpopulation problems back in the mother country in Europe. There was also acculturation and no way around this. Not that the Spanish and the French couldn't cohabitate back in Europe, but it will be acculturation with the natives. Native populations will eventually be marrying into the European populations. And you know where I'm going with this, too, which brings us to our fourth point, the three-corner trade, when we're going to get African populations, clearly and obviously against their will, but African populations that will also be brought here, which will also it can further mix this idea of acculturation. But lastly, as we end this podcast, I just want to end it with this concept or this notion of what we call the three corner trade. I will elaborate on this further because in all of American history, both halves—the first half and second half of American history—there is nothing more incendiary more politically volatile than to talk about race relations, especially with the issues of slavery. I'm going to leave you with something that you might so vehemently disagree with that you never log on to me again, and I respect that. However, what I'm going to share with you, you don't have to accept. But I ask you to tune in to the next podcast and the one after that where I flesh out with facts and numbers What I'm about to say. Racism, folks, was not the reason that Europeans went to Africa to enslave that population. A slave population was needed first. Sadly, racism is what followed. Very loaded statement, and I get that. It's easier to believe that the Europeans were just racist people went down to Africa, conked everybody that they that they saw and dragged them over to the new world. No. That is not the way it went. You got to have a little more respect for the African people to think that they are just going to simply be invaded and dragged over to two brand new continents. Oh, not at all. 14 million of them will not leave that continent simply because they were in the wrong place wrong time. So tune in for future podcasts, and again, I will explain that out. If, however, you can't wait and you wanted to hold my feet to the fire and say, explain yourself, by all means, feel free to email me, and I'm happy to get back to you on that. So thank you for listening. In between now and the next time you listen to the podcast, please go to my website, ceconsella.com. email me with any questions, read my latest blogs. If you like what we discussed, please leave me a positive review. Have a great day, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.